Yo, so this is Beat People Podcast, episode 70. Um, really exciting time, exciting show this time. We're going to be interviewing Rossum Electro's Dave Rossum and Marco Alpert. So we're going to be talking about just about everything with the, the, the Dave Rossum legacy from the classics, the emulator, the drum emulator, the Emacs, the SP-1200, all the way up to Eurorack stuff. And so, you know, if you have questions, throw them in the chat. And uh, you know, this is episode 70. Yo, Yo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Great to be here. So oh, welcome, Marco. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. How are you guys yeah. doing? Great. Real so good. Good. So yeah. good. Good. Thanks for coming on the show. This is uh this is good. We so we did a couple of um so our show augments over time. Like we typically have this this panel discussion and it's always about what's new that's out there. What's the stuff that, you know, beat makers and Eurac dudes want to talk about and because that's what we nerd out to. And then we did a couple of dedicated shows like the MPC show, which was a great show, really good conversation. Then we did the um, the SP twelve hundred show, which was another great conversation. <laughs> and then recently we did uh, last week we did a, a interview with Roger Lynn, and that was a great conversation. And so we're following all this up with you guys, and it's just kind of these focused conversations are just really fun, and we're happy to have you guys here with us. Great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, we we love it. <laughs> no doubt. And so D Steel, what's up, man? You good? Yeah, I'm good. I'm excited to learn a lot today. Cause this is kind of like, you know, <laughs> we'll I'm, see I'm, about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we got Ken. You good over there? I'm gonna try not to be banging on my keyboard and and hitting my boom stand and having spring <laughs> reverb all, all, this whole time. I actually stuffed socks in the springs today because I was sick of that, and my oh, my new man. boom stand isn't here yet. Yeah, so I'm is. I'm out here looking out for the people. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we we did it. We did the interview with Roger Lynn uh, last week, and um, during that interview, like anytime I would touch my keyboard, I've got this crappy boom stand over here, and the the springs in it would just be like doom. And I couldn't hear it because I can't monitor myself with this setup. So yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it was. It was kind of like very professional. Boom, 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 and as we were talking, this it was all over the place. Like, hey, Ken, you want to stop beating, trying to hacksaw your desk over there? True audio <laughs> professional. That's <laughs> right, right. So hey, I want to jump right in. Um, like for those that don't know, Dave, if you could give us just a, a little bit of like how Emu Systems came to be. Um, there's probably information out there, but I, for our viewers, I like to kind of give them sort of a heads up of how emu systems came to be and then we could kind of move up through through the history of that stuff well sure um you know the the name emu was born uh almost 50 years ago is in december 1970 that i came up with the name emu systems um some friends of mine from college uh down at caltech in pasadena um the spring before when when i was still there i, I graduated in, in the uh, uh, spring of 70 50 years ago. Um, mm. And uh, they were uh, uh, try putting together a band. I'm not a musician. Uh, I have this weird family love-hate relationship with, with music, which has turned me into <laughs> you know, the crazy guy I am today. Um, uh, but uh, um, I like hanging out with musicians. And so uh, you know, they were trying to form a band. And this guy named Bob Land wanted to play the synthesizer in the band, but we didn't have a synthesizer. 
and being nerds, I mean, it is Caltech after all, we decided that, gee, maybe we'll build one. Um, my degree was in biology, but I wanted to apply computers to biology, so I took computer courses and some electronics courses um, and uh, um, tried to help in that, in that project. Uh, never got anything off the ground before uh, summer came around and we all headed off, and I went up to grad school at uh, UC Santa Cruz. Um, and uh, uh, starting grad school there, again, in molecular biology, I was studying the structure of the ribosome, if that means anything to anybody. Um, mm. uh, my advisor was also a musician, a trumpet player, in fact. Um, and I came into the lab one day, and there was a note from Harry saying, uh, uh, they just got a brand new Moog synthesizer over mm. in the music department at College 5. Come on over if you want to help me unpack it with the... With the the music folks. So I ran over there. I thought this was really cool. I wanted to know about synthesizers. And it was, you know, I, I've said this many times. It was sort of like God taking you by the nose and going, over here, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, by that evening, I was teaching the music students how to patch and use the synthesizer. It just oh, get out of here. Wow. And um, uh, Bob Mogan, those days, he shipped all the schematics with the synthesizer. This is Mog mm. Model 12, one of the smaller ones he had. Um, but uh, I made copies of this and uh, started studying them and figured out how it worked and had my friends come up over Thanksgiving 1970 to UC and visit me and play with the Moog and look at the schematics. And then in December, over Christmas vacation, I went down to Caltech and we tried to start building our first synthesizer. Wow. Uh, um, and uh, that was like the, the, we'd order parts from the parts companies and they wanted to know what company you were with and so I had to come up with a company name and that was where the name Emu Systems was born um, <laughs> and uh, um, that stuck with the company um, over the next year then the following summer summer of 71 uh, all of us got together rented a little uh, um, it used to be a real estate office here in Santa Cruz and uh, um, it was available over the summer so six of us all lived in the place and uh, uh, put together the first Emu synthesizer called the Emu 25. Actually, it really wasn't the first Emu synthesizer. We did one um, that we built over the spring called the Black Mariah that was so horrible we threw it out the library window. And uh, Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was <laughs> I mean, you don't know what you're doing. You have to do it bad. wrong. Matter of fact, I still say, you know, frequently you want to do it wrong the first time so you can learn a lot of, make a lot of mistakes the first time around. Right, uh, but right. the, the, that, that summer we built the... Uh, um, uh, a uh, fixed front panel uh, modular type synthesizer. It's pretty similar to the ARP 2600. Okay. Um, we called it the EMU 25. And at the end of that summer, the Caltech guys wanted to go back and finish their degrees. Um, I wanted to keep working on with the, uh, with the company. So I dropped out of grad school. And mm. uh, right about that time, a high school friend named Scott Wedge um, uh, came over to visit us in Santa Cruz. And uh, um, uh, he had broken his back uh, parachuting out of an airplane and uh, had a bad landing, uh, wow. so he wasn't able to parachute anymore. And he got it; he got the synthesizer bug pretty much ba as bad as I did. And uh, um, so we decided to form a company and uh, traded the the interest in whatever we'd done together for the the physical prototype that we gave to the guys at Caltech. And uh, that bounced around LA. I don't know really what ever happened to that synthesizer. And Scott and I, along with my girlfriend of the time, Paula, um, uh, made in our house in Santa Cruz a second uh, one of these EMU 25 prototypes, which was sold to a guy named Bert Arnowitz, mm. who later became the curator of the Museum of 
conceptual art in San Francisco. And that was the last place that synthesizer was seen to my knowledge. Um, now we're coming into 72 and we realized that, uh, you know, we really knew what we were doing. So we decided we were going to build a modular system uh, better than anything else that was out there. And that was the EMU modular. Uh, we sold the first one to Ed Rudnick, who ultimately became our production manager at hmm. EMU Systems. And about that time was when we met uh, Marco Alpert and and, and mm -hmm. uh, his partner, business partner at the time, Richard. Um, and uh, um, they became our representatives down in LA and the company took off taking modular systems. And uh, many of those uh, uh, are still in service. There's one that's been at the Art Institute of Chicago that has been in continuous service from when they bought it back in 74, 75. Amazing. Now. Really? Really? So, yeah. Wow. So that was, the, that was the start of the, <laughs> that was the start of, uh, of EMU. Um, and we're, we're better known for the digital stuff, but that's still mm. a different story. So, uh, yeah. And so Marco, you've been there since almost the beginning then. Pretty close. Yeah. Uh, Ed Rednick, who Dave mentioned, I at that time, I and my partner were trying to put together a company to use synthesizers to create scores for like low budget and industrial films. Mm -hmm. And um, I had sort of, my, my partner was the recording guy, I was the synthesizer guy. And I pretty much decided on an ARC 2600 as what we wanted to work with. And there was only one place in the Bay Area that had one in stock, it was Moyer Music down in San Jose. And we went in to take a look at it. And Ed Rednick, uh, was a salesman there at the time. And obviously he did not have a great future as a salesman because when I, we started talking to him and he realized we kind of knew what we were talking about, he said, I have some friends who are actually making synthesizers. They're much <laughs> better than this. Would you like to meet them? <laughs> and uh, we said, yeah, that would be great. And they called Dave up on the spot. At that point, they were in an apartment in Homestead Road in San Jose, and we went over to take a look at it, and we were amazed. I mean, we couldn't conceive that just ordinary, you know, human beings could make synthesizers. We didn't know where they came from, but it seemed somehow more arcane than that. And uh, at the time, we couldn't afford it. It was a little outside of our uh, budget, so I ended up with a 2600 at that point. But in the next year or two, our business kind of took off, and most of our business was in L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided I really needed to move to L.A. to be closer to the clients and proposed to Dave that if they'd let me buy a synthesizer at wholesale, which I could barely afford, um, we'd, just, <laughs> we'd, we'd be the sales rep down there. And uh, actually, I ended up being a lot more successful selling synthesizers than I did scoring films down there. And uh, in 79, in they uh, uh, seduced me into coming back up to Santa Cruz to work for the company <laughs> full time. I came up for one year. I was convinced I had a career in L.A., and I, but I was a little burnt out. And I said, well, I'll come up and work for you for a year. And then I was there for the next 15 years. So the best lady. Oh, wow. <laughs> just, about, just about the time you came around uh, um, to uh, Thompson Rose was when we got the polyphonic keyboard prototype working. I'm sure that uh, uh, blew your mind. Uh, this oh, is absolutely. Yeah, the whole. Uh, so the, the, they were the, able to entice you with things like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stick around. That's look what, what that, we had got. that had many other things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that polyphonic keyboard was like the. the, the lead into uh, the Oberheim four voice and the profit five. That's yeah. what I wanted to touch on real quick. Can you, can you give us a little bit of a, um, of a background on how that tech kind of changed the industry at that point? Because up to that point it hadn't been done. 
And I, I still feel like I, I know we touched on this last time we had an interview, but I feel like a lot of people don't quite realize that that was you guys tech. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, you know, from the very beginning, uh, um, you know, back in the 70, 71 time frame, if you talk to any musician, um, any keyboardist, uh, synthesizer musician, um, they uh, uh, were very aware that the, the Moog only played one note and ARP had figured out how to get a second note. So it played the lowest and the highest note on, on the keyboard. And everybody wanted to be able to play chords, play, play multiple notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, but the direction everybody was going was trying to follow Moog's and ARP's lead and have it, you know, uh, play the lowest note on one uh, one oscillator filter uh, uh, VCA pair, and the highest note on another, and maybe the middle note in another, and 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 sort them out that way. Um, and I realized that wasn't going to work at all because then you know when you took a key off the keyboard, when you took the bottom key off, everybody shifted. It's like you know which number number key it was, and and synthesizers don't work like that. So I realized it had to be. Um, time sequenced and worked out the computer logic. Again, you know, my uh, work at Caltech and computers and built out of uh, a, a logic family called TTL, an actual working um, multi-voice prototype. We had three voices because that was all the synthesizer we could fit in a, in a cabinet uh, demonstrated on in our demo room. But the thing could go up to, um, I think it was 10 voices the original design would do. Um, the first customer for that was Leon Russell, and uh, um, his Will of the Wisp album was the first time anybody ever heard a poly synthesizer. And my my lab mate at, at Universal Audio, Gary Hull, says that you know when he heard that on that album, that was when he knew he had to have a synthesizer. Um, and uh, um, so it, it must have been 70, 73, 74, I met Tom Oberheim. Uh, down at, at uh, I think the AS show in Los Angeles, and we became good friends. Um, and uh, um, so I designed some tech for Tom Oberheim, uh, 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 a uh, circuit that would work in his phase shifter. And then uh, um, I told him about the keyboard, and he said, "Well, why don't we get a patent on that, and then you can license that patent to me." And that was the beginning of the Oberheim Four Voice project. Amazing. Um, wow. And. Um, then not long after that, when we came out with the SSM chips, I, you know, the, the whole uh, synthesizer chip business started. That, that, there's another long story there with Doug Curtis and Ron Dow and SSM and CEM. I, I can tell you a lot about the early days of that. <laughs> but uh, um, you know, when we came out with the SSM chips, Dave Smith got this idea. He'd been making sequencers, sequential circuit, because he was building sequencers, that he could build... Um, uh, oh, Scott Wedge called it a polyphonic mini Moog, and that became the Prophet Five. Um, and Dave actually, you know, he licensed the the tech from us for the keyboard. We designed the analog circuitry for him because he was more a digital designer, and he actually developed all the software for the first Prophet Five, uh, sitting in Emu Systems on our little home-built Z80 computer that, that uh, <laughs> we, we put amazing. together. So um, yeah, all, it's lots and lots of tech is. Uh, Spun off from from uh, what I've done. Uh, but, uh, that's that's pretty amazing. What what I love about it is the camaraderie that there seems to be there. I mean, because for the layman who wouldn't know any of those backstories, we look at all the brands and we look like, okay, there's all the brands. That's a marketplace. Those are competitions. Those are competitors mm-hmm. with one another. And even though they're separate brands, it's interesting to know that at Ground Zero. 
there was a camaraderie there and and that you know you were able to license and sort of get a, a whole business started or a whole kind of part of the whole side of the business that was dedicated to licensing the technology that you were creating. I think that's like really, really interesting. Yeah, and, and I really have to give um, a certain amount of credit um, to Bob Moog. Um, mm -hmm. The very early days of EMU, we had a technical catalog. I can't grab it on the bookshelf behind me. Um, there's uh, one of the old copies of it. Uh, and we'd sell this catalog for five bucks. It cost us about three bucks to put it together and it provided a little trickle of money, particularly when the, the company was really young. Um, mm -hmm. And we got a letter from Bob Moog saying, I'd like to buy your technical catalog. When we sent it back his, his uh, check and send him the technical catalog, said, your money's not good here. Uh, and, and wrote him this letter and said, you know, we really hope you don't feel ripped off by uh, you know, the fact that we're going into business competing with you. Um, and uh, he wrote us back this wonderful fatherly letter um, that uh, um, said, uh, no, I'm not, I, you know, I think it's wonderful that you guys are getting into synthesizers. You know, imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. And furthermore, you know, I love synthesizers. How can I not be encouraging to somebody else who obviously mm -hmm. loves them very much? And then he said, but since I've gone out of business four times already, uh, let me tell you, raise your prices. You can't possibly <laughs> produce what you're going to produce and, and, and stay in business at the prices. And uh, we took his advice. We, we literally tripled our prices mm -hmm. uh, a, a couple of days later, and people started taking this seriously. So, um, you know, he was That's the amazing. role model for, uh, you know, let's view each other, you know, uh, sharing our passion mm -hmm. rather than considering ourselves competitors. So, uh, um, uh, yeah, he was a, a wonderful, wonderful man. That's I should take great. a quick moment to introduce. Um, I added Mickey Delp to the stream. Who, well, uh, for, for those who don't know, Mickey Delp also runs uh, Delptronics, which is modular and other interesting music tech items, uh, and and has consulted and worked on a lot of other projects as well. Mickey's a great guy. So when I, when I mentioned that uh, I was going to have Dave and Marco on the show, he said, "Oh, that's really cool." I said, "Well, <laughs> you should come on with us then." So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Barely. It's very Barely. quiet. It's very yeah. Low. yeah. So can you can you? That's hear me? better. That's oh, better. Yeah. This is ridiculous. This is a, a USB mic. Um, <laughs> I just had in the drawer. Nothing else was working. <laughs> well, well, that actually works okay. But right. I mean, you have to hold it like that and basically swallow it. But <laughs> as I said before the show, this is what music professionals do. Uh, <laughs> we, we do live streams with terrible audio. <laughs> hey, I just wanted to to say that. Um, uh, your, your your praise of Bob Moog, of course. I'm, everyone uh, says what a great guy he was, but I, um, I have to say, reading uh, the old issues of Electro Notes, um, and reading your articles, and when you came out with the the SSM chips, you you published an article explaining exactly how it worked and sharing that with everyone. I think yeah, um, you know, I uh, my wife bugs me. She said, you know, Dave. You shouldn't be in synthesizers. You should be a teacher. And I actually did consider uh, coming out of Caltech, going going into education rather than going into what started as biology and came became synthesizers. Um, and you know, I, I, some of it I, I think is is uh, um, uh, you know sharing what you know is is one of the best things you can do for the human race. So mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, you know, I love to do that. I, you know, it, it's something I enjoy. 
Uh, and electronodes, now, you, you, there's another luminary in the field that a lot of people don't know about, Bernie Hutchins. Um, I got to meet him in person a few times. Uh, and he made a Mecca, a, a trip to uh, California Mecca out of uh, coming from Ithaca, New York, and visited us and uh, 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 spent uh, a day at EMU and so on. But he was another guy who was just passionate about synthesizers and sharing the knowledge and so on, and really did a tremendous amount to develop the industry and promote this camaraderie uh, where we all you know, would share our tech. Um, and uh, um, uh, you know, I, I think that carries on to Eurorack today. And it's one mm -hmm. of the reasons that Rossum Electro went into Eurorack was uh, mm -hmm. I found that same spirit and it so you know, spoke to my heart that I said, you know, we've got, we've got to go into this industry. Of course, everybody was telling us you have to, so <laughs> it wasn't the hard choice. But, uh, <laughs> that was the thing that, that absolutely cinched it for me was was uh, that that camaraderie I still feel in virtually all of the Eurorack manufacturers. Nice. So that's an interesting, an interesting thought, though, because I think for me, I was actually surprised even though we all say stuff like, yo, if if this person or that company or that company gets into Eurorack, I'm buying every single thing that they make. But I have to say it was a surprise uh, for a lot of us to see that, you you know, your new products were Eurorack products. And, and I think because uh, a lot of people just kind of assume that when you made new products, it would be a new SP-1200. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like honestly, that, that kind of oh, forms mm -hmm. on conversations and that seemed to be the, the sort of thing. Uh, but so that's what you're saying. That was the draw to Eurorack, the fact that it's this camaraderie and it's just an open market and uh, the, the community aspects sort of it. Huh? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, we're, uh, uh, you know, as I think everybody knows, EMU got bought by Creative, and no, that didn't ruin EMU. Creative, uh, I've said this again in print a number of times, and I can't say it enough. Creative was a great company to acquire EMU. They kept the company whole. Um, they were very respectful of our traditions. Um, and one of the things that was pretty interesting was, you know, normally when big company buys little company, uh, everybody in little company has to adopt all the big companies systems and methods and things like that well creative had had this uh explosive growth just a couple of years before they bought emu um which meant that uh, uh their uh, company uh, systems were in disarray it's like they'd hired as many people as they could but they really didn't know much about being a well-established company so when they started you know looking around okay how do we get systems they found that they'd acquired a, a you know 20 year year old company already that had these things in place. So mm -hmm. a lot of the, the uh, procedures and processes that, that creative made worldwide came out of what they saw at EMU that they saw was working and, and they owned it already because they bought the company. Um, and uh, um, uh, you know, very few commands from on high until, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, that was when the whole software synthesizer world sort of took mm -hmm. over and it was really hard to sell anything that was hardware. Uh, mm -hmm. And creative at the time was also struggling with uh, um, uh, going out of the, the uh, add-on card for computers into things that were integrated into the, the motherboard and, and, and or, or connected via USB and so on. Um, and at that time, uh, you know, their 
uh, investors basically said, you got to tighten the belt, and they passed it on to EMU. But it was all done very, very appropriately. So I, mm -hmm. I can't say anything uh, bad about the management at, at Creative at all. I don't know if got nothing but good uh, came out of that. And many of the products that, that um, the later EMU products, uh, the, the emulator four and uh, um, uh, the Oddity 2000, a lot of those neat um, products were done under Creative's uh, management. And, nice. and people love those things. Um, Dave, Dave. Um, yeah. As part of that, uh, just because I know that we have limited time because you want to do your graduation or your um, yeah. alumni thing. Um, yeah. But I, I did want to just touch he on a, a quick like question. It's a horrible idea to want to do your alumni thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wanted to touch on a couple of things that we, we hadn't really had a chance to, to discuss too much in previous interviews before we sure. get to the Eurorack stuff because I really want to talk Eurorack. Um, but – I wanted to ask you a question about the Insonic stuff um, and how that – when that came into the fold, what was your opinion of that? Because I know that you design your samplers um, in an audio way, in a musical way, very kind of particular as far as what the frequency response is and, and what you add and what you drop as far as uh, what the sampler is taking in. And the Insonic samplers – not not to be too harsh in my words, but we're a little bit more crude in, in the way that they would just sample everything in and spit everything out. Um, how did you feel about when that came into the fold, and what was your thoughts about you know like the ASR range and and that sort of thing? Um, because you guys came in after the EPS range was already out there, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I mean, starting from the the beginning, when we first saw in Sonic at a trade show and they were going to make a, an emulator. We were selling the emulator two for I think $8,000 then. And they were going to come up with a Mirage for somewhere around $2,000. I think that's where, where it ended up was 1995, something like that. Um, you know, we knew they couldn't do the audio fidelity um, that, uh, um, that the emulator could do. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and we knew nothing about them. Uh, I, you know, it was, wasn't until we actually uh, 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 the the acquisition at Creative of, of Insonic that I got to know the guys really well, um, but uh, um, as I said, you know they they use a technique called drop sample. It's the it's the most primitive form of of sampling. It's also used in the SP twelve hundred. So uh, and uh, you know my original thoughts is you know the musicians won't put up with it, but of course they flock to it because it only costs two thousand dollars. <laughs> and 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 this has been um, you know again it's one of the delights of my career. Um, is when you make an instrument and it has quirks, musicians don't, you know, the really good musicians don't complain about the quirks, they use them. They mm -hmm. create music with whatever it sounds like, just like you would with any other instrument. And yeah. I, I think that's wonderful. And, you know, I, I always love it when somebody takes one of my instruments and does something uh, unusual musically um, that, uh, uh, that's just in a completely different direction than what I was thinking of. When I uh, you, know, you designed the thing, so that's uh, uh, you know I, I uh, uh, took for the, the lesson from Insonic was uh, um, yeah you you can make things that that really are pretty flawed musically and people will make music with them um, mm -hmm. and and ultimately came very much to respect the company for that. Then as I got to you know the the acquisition by Creative is. Uh, um, there's an interesting story behind that. When Microsoft, uh, I, you know, Creative acquired Emu, 
I became chief scientist for creative. And uh, when Microsoft made a transition to plug and play, a lot of what was called the Sound Blaster standard mm -hmm. um, got eliminated. And we had a big meeting. I remember it very distinctly. And I asked the, the head of software, because um, I was primarily a hardware guy. I, I, if I write software, it looks like it was written by a hardware engineer. Uh, but uh, um, the head of software for creative, I said, is there any way we can cheat and keep the Sound Blaster standard or is that completely locked out? You know, there's no way around it. I have to trust you, so think carefully about this. Is there any way that we might be able to do it? You know, I've got hardware stuff that can back you up. And he said, no, it's completely impossible. Well, he was wrong, and the Insonic guys figured <laughs> that out. Um, so they started producing a soundboard that Creative saw that, uh, saw, uh, that board eating into their... Uh, um, their marketplace. So they decided, um, uh, you know, rather than try and fight them, why don't we just acquire them? Uh, oh, and, wow. and I was the guy who had to go out and evaluate all the technology. So I went out to uh, Malvern and got to know the guys. And uh, um, of course, you know, once all of a sudden we were very much on the same side because they wanted to be acquired and, and so on. Uh, became quite good friends. They, they had some other projects going, but it was, they were largely dropping out of the musical instrument world because it, it just was not doing that well at the time. So I never really got to know much about that other than later on I found out, uh, I always thought Emu uh, you know, was weak on documentation. Boy, it was in Sonic Bad. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. The, the maintenance of those lines was just a nightmare. Um, but the, guy, the guys were great. Um, and actually, the, the, they fell apart because they designed something that was more or less the same as the TiVo as a new marketplace. And then they couldn't get access to the patents on the TV guide that would make it work. Wow. And um, that was, it was one of these things that just fell apart. And that was really when Ensonic as a company fell apart. And I don't think creative's really done much of anything with the Ensonic brand. I had tried um, so many times to get in touch with Bob Yanis because I'm actually like just outside of Philly. So I'm not even that far from that area. Oh, yeah. Like, Melbourne's yeah. just up the way. And um, yeah, he's he's kind of notoriously hard to get for interviews and that sort of thing. But I, I just like that whole era is is really interesting. I mean, everything from Sid Chip, you know, on through the ASR series. Yeah. Uh, just really interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, so like, I have a... Go ahead. Oh, go, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, you know, I, I haven't stayed in touch with those guys, but uh, um, uh, during the, the, those couple of years when we worked together, they, they were really a lot of fun. Cool. Very cool. So Sorry. I have a question. Um, so as, as you guys were kind of working through EMI systems and your licensing technology and stuff, and I know, <clears throat> Marco, you were out there, you know, doing the, the sales. And I could imagine that you saw indicators when EMU systems became like a successful company and maybe even indicators when <clears throat> the markets would change from analog to digital, from digital to, to computer, from computer to like, mm -hmm. what were those moments like when you started to see those indicators and those different things, the success or the, the dips and, and those kinds of things? Well, I mean, obviously we were caught in a transition in the, the arrival of, of uh, the DX7, for instance, which was 
suddenly you could get a lot of polyphony and something that was completely self-contained, kind of, at least at that point, it was kind of interesting. We thought that that whole movement was essentially the death knell for uh, modular synthesis. <laughs> oh my God. Um, you know, shortly after that, we discontinued uh, the EMU modular and started transitioning into digital. And frankly, I think if you had asked Dave or I back in the, the early eighties, whether modular synthesis would ever come back, we'd just probably snicker at the, the possibility. <laughs> so, uh, you know. So you're saying, you're saying if, if the beat people panel came from the future, like the Terminator back to the past and said, yeah, hey, we're yeah. all into modular yeah. 2020. Yeah, we, we, would, we, would, <laughs> we would think you had come from a different timeline somehow <laughs> than ours. Give um, me your shirt, your yeah. boots, and your modular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ken would have showed up with no clothes. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. No clothes, looking for looking for sense. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So you know, we the the trans the, the transition for digital s came for for a number of reasons. One is that we had worked for a while on this thing called the Oddity, which was going to be the ultimate computer controlled uh, polyphonic analog synthesizer. Um, we introduced it at the AES show in LA in. 80? 80, I think it was. Yeah, maybe. It's, yeah, it's one and only uh, public uh, performance. Hmm. And we were quite a high. Uh, we, we were down there. We were actually fixing it in our motel room about two hours before the... Uh, I have a picture somewhere of Dave standing on a chair in the hotel room, <laughs> you know, sticking his head in the, the computer rack that drove it. <laughs> should dig that up sometime. Um, and, uh, and, and Rudnick, who was, you know, was now our manufacturer person, he and I performed on it. He played the keyboard and I played a Luricon wind controller uh, patched to one of the voices simultaneously. It was a great, uh, great introduction. We were really excited. We drove home and found a letter from Sequential Circuits telling us that they were going to stop uh, paying us royalties, which was actually a big part of our money at the time. Wow. And uh, that I think almost more than any sort of uh, great market insight said, hmm, maybe we need to do something else. And at the same time, we had seen that the um, the excitement over the Fairlight, obviously the Fairlight did a lot of stuff, but what seemed to excite people most was, it wasn't called sampling at that time, I forget mm -hmm. what it was actually called, their digital recording capability. Page and R, I think is what it was. Page R was the sequencer. Oh, was that the sequencer? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Page, page R was, but it was a page, page something number. else, yeah. yeah, yeah. But they did it in a brute force way, where enabled to get the way they got eight voice polyphony is they had eight separate little engines each doing uh, sampling. And Dave thought about that for, I don't know, about five minutes and said, you know, I think we can do that a lot more um, uh, efficiently by sharing the engine. And that was the start of what became the emulator about a year later. And that was probably the biggest transition in the company. I mean, I'd like to believe that as a marketing, I, mean, I was mostly marketing. I did sales for the first few years, but I'm not really a salesman. We eventually brought in good salespeople. I was head of marketing. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to believe that we had the insight to see what was happening in the, you know, the beat and hip hop world and that that's what the SB 1200 is about. But we didn't, we honestly, <laughs> we honestly didn't. I <laughs> we love just that, thought, the way you let yeah. in, it made me think yeah. like, yeah, that's where it's going. <laughs> yeah, no, we just thought, hey, we can do it. We can do a better drum machine. We can, you know, take the next uh, generation of the technology Dave had, uh, had created. I, I had designed the core user interface for the emulator two and felt that we could move that over to the, to a drum machine. Um, 
And then, of course, Emu always been an incredibly um, uh, interactive company with uh, everybody contributing. It grew up well, well beyond my original concept. But the idea at that point was just to have the coolest drum machine we could make. It was 12-bit, so it was going to sound better at the time from the mm -hmm. current standards. And I really wanted a user interface that was really accessible. So you didn't have to scroll through a tiny, you know, displays were tiny in those days. So if you had menus, they were just really, really hard to get around in. Mm -hmm. And the idea that I'd come up with for the emulator of actually having those modules, essentially the little, you know, the manual as it were printed on the front panel where you push the button and pick the function was working really well for keyboard players. We thought it'd probably work well for uh, a drum machine too. So as we went into that, it was like, we're just gonna make you know, we made a great sampler, now we're going to make a great drum machine. The fact that it ended up going where it was going was honestly really great happenstance for us. <laughs> <laughs> Good timing is what it really came down to. Yeah, too, yeah. yeah. it was being the right place at the right time. And, and, you know, that so often happens with technology that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, we, Roger Lynn was making the Lynn 9000 at the time, which was a 16-bit machine, which was going to be too expensive. Um, we couldn't take the really good pitch shifting that was being done in the emulator. It was just too expensive to put into a, a lower cost drum machine. So that was the, the drop sample thing. Uh, the way we did the 12 bits uh, turned out to have a really nice, interesting sound in it. There, there are um, subtleties to that circuitry that, uh, um, that are really quite tricky, but, but are, uh, you know, give uh, uh, much more character to the sound than just if you take a plain, you know, modern, just trunky bit crush into 12 bits. Mm -hmm. It's going to sound uh, different to the discerning ear. Um, mm -hmm. And all of that just, it, it, it played right into the cultural things that were happening at the time. And yeah. bingo, there you go. Can we, uh, can we just jump like, Crazy fast forward oh, into. Marco, I read an interview uh, that you did uh, in Sound on Sound uh, in in April of '87, and we all know that the the mm -hmm. SP1200 came out like in August of '87. Mm -hmm. I think. No, yeah. no, no. '86 uh, wasn't it? The, 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 it was it was first shown at the New Orleans NAM show. Well, that was the twelve. The, the, oh, the, the 12. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I, excuse me. Yeah. The 1200 was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. You, you showed incredible restraint because the interviewer said, what, what's, you know, what's coming next? And you, you were just like, oh, we're working on some stuff. And obviously <laughs> the, the 1200 was just about to drop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Well, that yeah. that's a, that's a skill that came from years of being a marketing person talking to the press, <laughs> <laughs> learning how to just say no. Yeah, <laughs> in a polite um, way. <laughs> so I, I I did want to like jump fast forward because we're super limited on time, but I wanted to touch on the new Euro rack stuff that you guys have uh, with Rossum Electro Mu. Uh, yes. So, you, one of the things that I wanted to touch on first is the Linus um, through mm -hmm. zero uh, filter. Because one, because I don't have one, and two, because we were just talking about through zero earlier today, uh -huh. uh, me and the other guys. And yeah. uh, what I wanted to ask you about with that is where the mentality for doing through zero on the filter side of things is when I know that it was already kind of um, becoming a new trend with uh, complex oscillators doing through zero. But I hadn't really seen anybody doing uh, filters in that way. So I, I just kind of am curious about where the mentality for that came. 
I, yeah, it's a story I, I don't know if this has ever been uh, really shared before. Uh, oh, know, in that case. Through, through <laughs> Go Zero goes way back to uh, um, my early days at UC uh, Santa Cruz. Uh, uh, professor Eric Regner, who was the guy who, uh, uh, professor who was in charge of that Moog Model 12, um, he uh, 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 invited a Stanford professor named John Chowning over to talk mm. at Santa Cruz. And Chowning had just invented this new way of making sounds by modifying uh, in digital synthesis uh, the music for oscillator so that it would go through zero and backwards in frequency and made these wonderful trumpet tones. Mm. Um, uh, John was talking about that publicly way back then in, in what, 71, 72? Uh, the Stanford patent that was exclusively licensed to the Yamaha was dated, I think, 77. So any of us in the music industry could have invalidated that patent. But uh, John Chowning was such a great guy. Again, this this community feeling, you know, we weren't going to tell anybody that this patent was invalid. <laughs> Yamaha would you know, still keep paying him royalties. And Stanford got, uh, you know, the, the karma, the whole music lab got funded by by that. And uh, John has done very well there. He's still around. I see him uh, several times a year. John Chowning, Mr. FM. Mr. Yeah. FM, and that's really what through zero is, is that FM done in an analog way. And um, uh, uh, the beauty of the sound is that when you modulate linearly through zero, you get these wonderful harmonic things, but they're all uh, related to the original pitch. So it's very musical as well as being very rich harmonically. Um, so now we fast forward a little bit. Uh, Rossum Electro is making modules and... Uh, 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 a lot of people have said, uh, uh, you know, Dave, your old universal active filter, the UAF of the EMU modular, you need to recreate that. And, uh, uh, you know, but I love inventing things. So I said, I, I don't feel like just, you know, bringing out the same circuit that I did back in, the, you know, 75, something like that, um, and, and putting it into Eurorack. Uh, I'd like, if I do a filter, I want it to be something new. And I was in the lab with the guy I mentioned before, Gary Hull. Yeah, I, I share a lab with him at Universal Audio, which is my, my other job role on the Rossum Electro. Um, and Gary was bugging me once again about the, the UAF. And he said, you know, isn't there something you can do? And I just got this, you know, brainstorm of, you know, has anybody ever, well, first of all, I said, yeah, has anybody put linear frequency modulation into a filter? And then immediately after that is, through zero frequency modulation of a filter that's got to sound neat because it's the same idea as what Chowning discovered back in, in 70. Uh, but to my knowledge, nobody had ever done that before. Um, I uh, built a mathematical model of it, listened to it, and sure enough, it really sounded terrific. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, there were some technical challenges you had to figure out the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, Topology of the universal active filter goes unstable uh, when you when you take it into negative frequency. Um, the the exponential decay of a ringing tone instead turns up an exponential increase. So it's going to take off like the virus is doing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I had to figure that one out um, and uh, um, uh, then uh, uh, refined it, and that was the basis of Linnaeus. But it was just it was this sort of an in instantaneous brainstorm of Nobody's ever done that. What does it sound like? It's got to sound good. And then a little testing. And there it is. 
Um, so nice. uh, yeah, people are having a lot of fun with this thing. It, it, it's a bit of a sleeper module because it came out on the, on the heels of uh, uh, the Panharmonium. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, that's 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 my joint right there. Woo. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, I, I had uh, to bring that up just because that that's it's one of those unique things, and that seems to be one of the things that you guys are are so good at is coming with uh, kind of new and interesting ideas into Eurorack that are you know pretty well refined as well. Um, for instance, like I have the I have the evolution filter, which you know on the surface mm-hmm. you would think okay that's just another ladder filter but it's so much more than that and it's done in in such a way that you can control these things in a really um really specific way like if you want that distortion you can get that distortion if you want it clean you can get that clean sound um you know if you want to cue compensate you can do that sort of thing um and, and all these modules seem to just be like really strong evolutions of ideas in into the euro rack area yeah, and the the like the Linnaeus, the the uh, you know Marco, uh, uh, I I came up with the idea for uh, evolution, um, and uh, Marco said, well, you've got voltage control of the of the uh, um, uh, the dynamics, but what about voltage control of the of the slope of the filter, the number of dBs per octave or poles? And I said, well, you, know, you really can't do that uh, because <laughs> since it's a ladder filter, there are rungs on the ladder. And so you, you, you would switch them. You wouldn't um, you know, move in an analog way between them. And uh, um, so uh, Scott Wedge actually back at, back at EMU used to, used to tell people, once Dave said it's impossible to do, he'll have a solution for it in a, in, in a few days. And that was the same <laughs> thing with Marco. That I, I went to sleep I still wanted to give Marco what, what it was he wanted, even though I could see that that didn't up, really apply to a ladder filter. And I got this, again, brainstorm of, you know, what if you gradually snuck the signal around one of the rungs of the ladder electronically. So you sort of move a valve, so you skip a step, and then move another valve, so you skip another one. But you're doing it in a nice continuous way. Um, went in on Saturday and prototyped it up in, in, in the, the, the lab that Gary and I share, and uh, uh, turned it on, listened to it, and it sounded great. I phoned up Marco. Marco drove over and had to listen to it right away. <laughs> and, I love and, it. And we said, okay, we've got it. We know what, what our first, because this was the first. Yeah, he really is so he really surprised it. me because I didn't actually expect him to have it solved until the following Monday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you already knew what it, he'll figure this out, but you didn't expect him to go to sleep and wake up with the thing, right? We, we've been through this scenario a few times over the last 40 years or so. Yeah. <laughs> I'll start calling, calling uh, yeah. Dave Ronson MacGyver. Yeah. He's got that yeah. MacGyver way. No, I, I, be, I believe it. I believe it. Uh, I remember being at NAM uh, a couple years, uh, maybe it was last year, the year before last, but. Maybe it's when you first uh, brought out the panharmonium. Man, what was on your mind when you made this thing? Panharmonium is... I, I, I can't even explain. It's it alien-like. Yeah. This is one of the things well, I would say before you ask. I just want to say, like, the thing about your modules is that the the Eurorack space is very interesting in that there's a lot of things that are similar there's a lot of you know you could just you just you have your pick of the litter of all these different things if you say i yeah. want xyz there's probably 
five or six choices or 10 choices that you could choose from. But the modules that you all come out with, it's they're, they're typically unique and they push the boundaries. Yeah. And and that definitely stands out to me, which leads us to like Linnaeus and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Panharmonium and stuff yeah, like that. I, we, I remember when, when this was announced, we were talking about this all day. Yeah. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah, well, we, credit credit where credit's due. This actually came from um, Bob Bliss, who was um, Dave and I formed the company, and we were uh, a two person partnership for a while. And then Bob was the first edition of the company. He was an engineer who was intimately involved in a lot of the EMU stuff, and was the director, uh, was the uh, creator of the EOS operating system for the samplers and all. And he proposed. Bob really writes software. Yeah. I, I I just I fake it, but Bob yeah. is the software engineer and and yeah, and yeah. brilliant guy, brilliant. brilliant so he, guy. he go ahead, Bob. Yeah, ahead. he presented a little concept to us of yeah. something he'd been thinking about that seemed kind of neat, and the first few iterations of it were, well, that's kind of neat, but I don't know, and it grew into Panharmonium. Um, it just got better and better. It added more and more capabilities. The actual definition of what it, it started out as a, as a functional concept and then the definition of what it actually would be as a module um, was kind of collaboratively uh, created by the, the bunch of us. And uh, probably it was about a year and a half or so that it, it moved from that first, uh, that first very primitive concept to the unique module you see now, which as you say, it's really a one of a kind thing. I'll tell you the moment that blew me away. When I, 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 one of you were doing a demo where you were running a jazz sample. It was like a jazz fusion record mm -hmm. through the panharmonium. And then you were able to pitch track the, the solo that was happening mm -hmm. over top. And I, yeah. I lost it. I literally yeah. lost it. I ran circles around my room. <laughs> I was just like, this is this is the craziest module for texture and and literally micro sampling textures inside of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that is gonna that's gonna change the game right there. And and people might not even recognize what that this does, but it's literally extracting the DNA of audio. Mm -hmm. Like it's going in there and like doing some nuts stuff. So I just wanted to say thank you for modules like this. This thing is crazy. Well, th thank Bob. Bob, I don't know if you're watching yeah. this, but if you're yeah, watching Bob, it, thank Bob, you. wherever you are, this yeah. thing is nuts. He, he dedicated himself to taking that original concept and just reworking it and reworking it and reworking it um, to get to what you see now. And it was extraordinary undertaking. Yeah, it's nuts. And then Corey, you got the Trident, right? Yes, the Trident yeah. is amazing. It yeah, sounds I saw that amazing at too. And I was, yeah. I was, I was at the UAE booth looking at that Trident. Like, man, will somebody notice if I break this glass and just run it? Because <laughs> man, that thing was incredible sounding. Well, you know what? What what I think is the the interesting thing is like if you like a a Rossum Electro system. 
would be crazy because if you think about the the module lineup, like you could put that in a system of its own and have that's a really incredible Eurorack system. The sampler, the mm. the, the filters, the you know what, what I mean? is what what do they think is missing from from a complete Rossum system? Because currently, I don't believe you guys sell an altogether yeah, Rossum yeah, system like like Rossum Electro Mu system. So mm -hmm. clearly, you guys think something's missing. So what is it? Well, Let's see so if Marco much. can dodge this. Oh yeah, I don't need to dodge it. It's not. It's not that we necessarily think something is missing. Um, if we came out with a system, we would want a system that is um, integrated to the quality that Rossum electro modules need to be. And there are some challenges in the uh, Eurorack world. Um, power supplies. Um, Oh, that, that jumps right into what I wanted to. I'm going to segue like super fast into this because we have such okay. limited time. But okay. I wanted to do this because a good friend here, uh, Paul, mm -hmm. released his his Ultra VCO, uh, mm -hmm. which also, I, I guess this is based on one of Dave's designs. Is oh, that yeah. This is uh, matter of fact, it's not just based on it. This is the this is the new version of it. Uh, um, yeah, Paul. Uh, uh, Paul asked for my help on this, so uh, um, yeah, Paul and I go way, way back. Um, uh, they're a funny story. Anyway, yes, you're right. So, <laughs> there, there's so many stories with Paul. So <laughs> yeah, no yeah, kidding. He's great. <laughs> yeah, he's, Paul was he's one of the people who was really welcoming and helpful in the very earliest days of us deciding what we were going to do with Rossum Electro. So wow. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Paul is a legend so, uh, in the just, industry, just, so if anybody doesn't know who I'll, we're I'll, talking about, we're talking yeah. about Paul Schreiber of Synthesis yeah. Technology. So, yeah. mm -hmm. At any rate, the, the, just the, the funny story, because I think they told really quickly, in his original version of that, that was uh, pretty much copied from the EMU uh, uh, 1201 oscillator by Paul's friend Charlie Thompson, who's also a good friend of mine, another absolute genius guy, uh, behind a lot of the really high-tech A to D converters. That's one of his areas of expertise. Um, mm. Anyway, tr when Charlie copied the circuit, he put a diode in backwards. And so there's this yeah. leg of the circuit that doesn't do anything because the diode's in backwards. <laughs> and so when Paul asked me for help on this, I looked at uh, who did this? It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And he pointed the finger at Charlie. I said, I've got to tell Charlie, which I, I, I haven't gotten to tell. Maybe Charlie's listening and we'll hear back on this. So you got the backwards, backward whatever, when he did this for Paul way backwards. But we all got a good good laugh out did of that. Charlie, did Charlie design the DAC that's in the, in the uh, assimilator. assimilator? Because me and Corey, when we got the assimilator, we literally just sat and loaded audio into it and just listened to what the output sounded like. And it was next level. It was so and, pristine. Yeah, we were just like, wait, there's some sort of witchcraft happening here because yeah. like... That's just that Dave Ross on design. Well, yeah. it's, it, you know, it's actually the company AKM, which is one of the really good manufacturers of, uh, of audio converters. And that's one of their... Uh, not not very top of the line, but certainly for Eurorack, it's a really good DAC. And then I'm also I, I've been designing AKM converters in since early EMU days because they're a very good company, um, and gotten good friends with the applications engineers. So mm. um, you know I know a lot of the tricks on how you make that thing sound the best it can. 
Um, but you know, the, Charlie's behind the technologies behind that. He probably ACAM probably has licensed patents that Charlie's name name wow. on it. Uh, whether the patents are still valid, but uh, but yeah, that you're, you've made the right connection between yeah, Charlie because, and today. Yeah, because I remember I remember literally just plugging it in and and it was like, whoa, there's something different about this than mm -hmm. any other module that I have in my rack. The output, the way this sounds is nuts yeah it's incredible and you know the the one of the things that's really uh dope about the assimilator is <clears throat> you know for those that may have the assimilator and a lot of us don't like to read manuals but yeah. i found it <laughs> really interesting that when i read the manual i was like wait they basically have the recipe for every sampler that they ever made. Like you can you can yeah. dial in the exact uh, parameters of the bit rate and the, the you know the the sample rate, the bit depth, and all of those different things. You could dial in and you could get the 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 sound of the SP twelve hundred or the, the emulator or the you know so far back. And so was that part of like the design thought going in that you wanted to be able to give people that flexibility to arrive at those sorts of sounds because i think when people heard that you were doing a sampler that you guys were doing a sampler for eurac i'll be honest i think most people just assumed it was going to be some sort of sp1200 in eurac format <laughs> it turned out to be so much more beyond that and it's, it's just incredible Actually, the intent wasn't so much to specifically simulate our past instruments. It, most of those controls were put in there as basically as sound design tools. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we recognize is that there are some people's music where they really want the kind of pristine quality that the, the simulator is capable of at its best. Mm -hmm. But there are other people who, for stylistic or sound design reasons, wanted um, something else. And in the same way that, you know, you have a filter to decide the cutoff frequency or whatever, we wanted to give them a bunch of new controls that allowed that actual audio quality to be something that people could sculpt. Mm -hmm. Can you get close to some of the, you know, existing things? Yeah, you probably can, but, but that wasn't our intent. And we actually don't make any claims for it to be uh, pristine simulations of anything. They're really just creative controls. Yeah, and, and that's what I got from reading the manual. It was kind of like if you read between, it, it was not necessarily saying, hey, you want to get the sound of this sample that we made 30 years ago? Do this. <laughs> it was more like, yeah, but this control does this, this control does this. Yeah. And actually, that kind of gets you close to this. Yeah. Because the, yeah, because the, remember, Corey, remember when we found out the actual numbers of, of the combinations we had to do mm -hmm. in order to get certain sampler sounds? We're like, yep. oh, this yep. is this is what we have to do, you know, and that can make sense in the manual. Right. I, I have a there's a module that always um escapes me, the control forge. Mm -hmm. Right? What the heck is this thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the control for what it, it's interesting. Um, the last product that I fully was responsible for at EMU was the Morpheus um uh, rack mount module. Mm -hmm. And that technology was so amazing, but access to it was somewhat limited by the fact that you had to get to it through a two-line 16-character LCD display. <laughs> and if, if you go into that and look at the things it can do, so when we were putting together our plan for our first batch of products um, 
for Rossum Electro. Clearly, the Morpheus filter was really near the, the top of the list after, after um, uh, evolution. But also in, um, in Morpheus was something that was called the function generator. And it was absolutely the most powerful programmable modulation thing that had ever been created to the, at that time when you looked at it. But it was virtually impossible to get your arms around through that tiny little display. So we, we had this desire to bring out this incredible control in something that would profit from a much more approachable interface. So actually, the Morpheus filter and the Control Forge are both two halves of the same desire to bring the, the Morpheus module technology out into a more approachable form. So you're telling me I have to have both? Absolutely. Okay. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. No, actually, just, actually, I'm, what I'm you need, what, what I'm just confirming. Be, yeah. Yeah. To be clear, in the original Morpheus module, because of the limitation of the computer power of the day, even though you could morph in three dimensions, you could only we only gave you real time control over one of those dimensions. The other two were grabbed at node on time and weren't changeable. And one of the big things about the Morpheus module from Rossum is that computer power, the computer has gotten a little more powerful since the, uh, the early 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so now you get real-time control over all three dimensions. And what that's leading to is what you really need is a Morpheus and three control forges. One for each dimension. So, or, or control yeah. forges for satellites. If you yeah. want and you said you're not a salesman. No, 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 not at all. Okay, okay. No. <laughs> okay, so so initially, so the control for forge is a function generator. So LFOs, modulation, envelopes, mm -hmm. and is it is it from what I from when I'm looking at the panel? Can we customize that in steps too? Absolutely. Yeah. So so each each function each function generator, what we call a preset, is eight steps. Each step can have. Um, its own shape, there's a selection of, uh, I forget, 60 some odd different shapes. Um, and you're not limited, you're not limited to eight steps because any step can link to an entire another preset. So you can actually have function generators that are hundreds of steps long. But the really amazing thing, or at least we think it's amazing, is that for, is. Yeah, for generative stuff, each step can have the option of what's called a conditional jump. So it can look at a whole bunch of different parameters, which can be a CV coming in from various CV inputs and a bunch of other stuff, analyze that, and depending on what it sees, jump to another step or an entirely different preset. So the it's virtually limitless, but to be fair, it does require you to kind of get your head around it and do some pre-planning. That's not really... Uh, no, improvisatory yeah, module. Now I, I'm looking around my studio right now to see mm -hmm. what <laughs> can go. I know where his head is already. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm, I'm looking around the racks where I have like mm -hmm. dust on specific modules. I'm like, yeah, yeah I haven't used that in a while, so I'm gonna get yeah. rid of that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's really cool. And the satellite is basically just a, a, a an expansion to the control. Forge. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the reason the there's a number of reasons why the Control Forge is expensive as it is, and that's in order to be able to access all those incredible capabilities, we we didn't want you to have to do what you did on the original Morpheus module, which is to dive you know eight layers deep through a lot of um, 
uh, menus. So we tried to put everything as much as possible just one button press away. But since there's so much stuff, that means there's a lot of buttons there. Um, mm -hmm. Because we want to, we literally want to make it as approachable as possible. However, once you've done all that work on a control forge, you can then take what you've created and then just dump it into a satellite, and you have everything you've created now in a much smaller and less uh, expensive and less, you know, HP intensive uh, tool. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and it doesn't even take. You don't actually have to patch them together and back with cords, but you basically use your regular patch cords to just patch out from the control forge, put it in a mode, patch it into an input on the front of the satellite, push a button, and everything is just squirted across. I do wonder if you guys would ever consider having like a like a software interface where you can just map all this stuff out and you know dump it that way. Is that something that would interest you guys or no? We've talked about it. We're yeah. we're we're well, I, I, I yeah. think I'd, I'd, I'd say you know, yeah. definitely yes on, on, on having it. it, it it's a, uh, we thought maybe somebody would sort of raise their hand and say, gee, tell us the spec and we'll write it for you. Um, nobody's done that. Everybody wants to. Anybody who's listening, <laughs> hey, you know, hey, uh, yeah. happy to have that <laughs> done. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've actually put that out there, I think, on Muffwiggler a while ago, uh, uh, yeah. and nobody's taken us up. But we're, we're always open for that because, quite frankly, being we believe that being able to graphically put together um, a, a preset for a control forge would be uh, a hugely powerful thing. And, and tell you the truth, the same thing for assimilator. Assimilator yeah. has a, a, a preset structure as well. Uh, and I think it's all, it's either self-explanatory or published uh, published on the website. I don't know exactly. All right, Mickey. in charge of the website. But, uh, yeah. um, <laughs> you don't have enough so, to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that that kind of stuff would be just great. Uh, uh, we're a little company. Huh? We can't mm. can't do everything. You, you know yeah. that. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm just letting you know. Give me some time because I got to figure out some stuff. I got to you know, <laughs> Peter, PayPal. You know, I just <laughs> I, I got to figure it out. Yeah, we're with have, you. I'm gonna have me. I'm gonna have me a system, uh, a, yeah. a whole plasm yeah. system. And you know, and if you just happen to make some VCAs and extra stuff, just to you know fill it up. <laughs> That's know. right. Yeah, so the great. the also the the thing, and I know we're kind of running wow. over an hour at this point, but I wanted to talk about the uh, there was a special edition SP twelve hundred that you recently announced. Tell us about that and you know how that came about and what it's about so um basically uh when rossum electro started you guys aren't the first ones who, who have said you know what you need to do is the the you know another sp1200 and next mm -hmm. sp1200 that's a big project um, yeah. <laughs> and we're a little company and again the rossum philosophy i'd, I'd want to do it right mm -hmm. um so uh but we get emails i'd say we get at least an email a week saying, you know, when are you going to do something with the SP-1200? Um, and uh, so we've, been, we've just been brainstorming what we could do. And um, uh, I needed to get back into it. Some of it, I, you know, I, I think the, uh, well, I can tell you the, uh, the SP-1200 software was lost by EMU. Nobody, oh, wow. <laughs> it's gone. When we came out with the, the final, uh, um, uh, uh, well, you, you've seen me often wearing my SP-1200 T-shirt with the Jurassic Parts dinosaur on it. Yeah. Um, 
uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite uh, favorite pictures. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'll get to what's on the screen in just a second. At any rate, we we uh, um, uh, the the software was gone, but I've wanted to do something in the SP twelve hundred, and the world seems to be uh, embracing vintage instruments. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought the first thing to do to get my head back into the SP twelve hundred would be to come up with a way of taking the existing instruments and I, I'm just going into the design, went into the software and said, what can I make that's straightforward to do and will flag the world that, yes, I'm still, I'm still here for you in the SP-1200 world. I want to give you that true vintage sound. So this is the, the, the first step, and I don't know what the next step is, um, but uh, uh, what we're doing here, and it's admittedly very expensive, it's for people who are collectors or absolute lovers of the 1200. Uh, we're renovating it. We're taking out everything that, that wears in it, all the new, the jacks, all the slide pots, all the switches, the, the display. Um, uh, there are tantalum capacitors in there that will occasionally boil up. We're replacing those. We're replacing the power supplies. That was always the weak spot wow. in the thing. Um, and, uh, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a collector's edition. We're only going to do a handful of these things. Um, and uh, unfortunately, because it's a renovation, um, uh, we're giving priority to people who can get us one to, uh, to renovate. Um, so that's, uh, there's, a, there's a waiting list. I think it's pretty well full at this point. And, and they're trickling out. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's what we're doing to start with. But, uh, um, you know, I, I guess the, the teaser I can say is I know people want more and I want to give you more. So um, uh, this is the beginning of our involvement with it rather than, than the end. And that's about all, all I can say it. <laughs> well, that's good enough for, for that's, me. That's good yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I know people love the SP 1200. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's one of the coolest things in my life that, that the, the, the SP 1200 has created the music and the, the genre that it has. It's one of the it's things I, cool I'm really most proud of my, in, in terms of my legacy, uh, in, in music. So it's right. a strange thing oh. that, uh, the, the product that, you know, you, you've been so focused on like this, like getting the most out of 12 bits and getting that, you know, with the Emacs even and, and the emulator too, and all mm -hmm. that, getting the, all this fidelity. And then it's like the product that you were like, oh, well, they, they're not going to care as much about fidelity because it's just drums. Oh. So, <laughs> and that yeah. one's, is the one that's like got this huge life. Yeah. yeah. Because it's the one that has the character, right? I, exactly. I have this, yeah. I have this, uh, this thought that, um, you know, later years from now, there's going to be people looking for Instagram compression algorithms. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were talking about that earlier. Yeah, <laughs> Yo, I got that iPhone one. That iPhone yeah, one you know, yeah. Because this is the generation that we're so used to receiving and 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 taking in music and audio that way that it. it 10, 15 years from now, it's going to feel nostalgic, that sound. Like, <laughs> somebody's yeah. going to be like, yeah. yo, I got this thing, and it'll give you the Instagram compression. Like, yo, I got that FL, <laughs> yeah. I got them FL Studio envelopes. Yeah, <laughs> every, everybody develops their favorite. During my years at Antares, uh, once we came out with Autotune 6 and Autotune 7, suddenly people were convinced that there was the Autotune 5 sound. 
So they were keeping old computers with old operating systems so they could get that Autotune 5 sound. <laughs> I got to say, personally, I, I, I absolutely love the sound of the Emacs one. I have one back uh -huh. here. And it's Actually, it's honestly my favorite yeah. sampler uh, sound-wise. I, I love the control that you have over it. And um, it, it really shocks me because, yeah, it's old. It's huge, uh, <laughs> you know, by today's standards. But that thing's actually really fast to get around on. Um, mm -hmm. Like, I, I find myself, and I, I have debates with, with my buddy Glenn about this thing because we, we go back and forth over different uh, vintage samplers. But uh, I got to say, like, I find moving around on that thing really fast and intuitive. Like, I'm able to, like, yeah, you got to break it down into voices, like voice groups. Um but it's it's so fast and yeah, I, I love the, I love the working on the old sound gear. Is actually I love it. Pretty dope for that thing. And Ken, you made me a believer in that when you play demos of yeah. things that you were sampling, it thing sounds great. Yeah, yeah and I made a bunch of sample packs of like roads that I would sample into it and I would sample it at like eight K and you know, get that grittiness. And then as you get further away from the key center, it would get darker because of the sample rate reduction of, yeah. of pitching it yeah. down like that. Yeah, that's oh, I really love good. it. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, that sounded really, really good. Nice. Man, um, well, I think we should probably end up end out because I feel like we're 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 keeping you from your your people. Well, I know, I'm, I'm good for another fifteen minutes or so if you want to. Keep oh, going. okay. Well, in yeah, that in that is, case, uh, yeah. yeah. Mickey, did you have did you have some specific questions? Yeah, uh, Mickey, with, you've been kind of quiet. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I got a couple of mine in. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I, I'm I'm just really fascinated um, about the the development of especially the 1200 um, and just what you had to do to to squeeze uh, that kind of quality out of you know out of like a Z80 uh, processor and and you know the the tools of the day um, is pretty amazing and. People, uh, and we've touched on this, always trying to get back to that vintage sound. But, but at the time, you you were trying to make it sound as good as it could. You you weren't trying to get have a gritty. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the the emulators, as as uh, Marco mentioned, was was sort of a, a uh, invention being the uh, or necessity being the mother of invention that. Uh, uh, we uh, our cash flow situation completely changed uh, um, when the profit five royalties disappeared. Um, so we needed to get something out. We recognized that you know, there was the Fairlight. The Fairlight was eight bit linear coding, and it, it, that that just doesn't sound very good. Um, I'd been familiar. I'd, I'd experimented in the lab with with what are called Comdacs, and Roger Lynn had used that in the um, uh, the LM one drum machine. And actually had me do, I, I did the design review for Roger on that drum machine um, way back when. And that was in that last week when he was on the yeah, show. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was, uh, you know, the birth of the emulator one was to use the Comdac, but it was an 8-bit machine. Um, and then when we went to the emulator two, um, uh, I think it was an MXR circuit I saw. Hmm. Um, and uh, it implemented something that Dana Massey, my, my DSP guy that uh, worked at EMU for so many, many years and uh, still is a very, very close friend. Uh, uh, Dana called, it's called D-Star PCM, uh, out of the, the, this is stuff, telephone terminology. But it, it's a higher fidelity um, 
uh, coding that you could do in the analog domain because we, we didn't have DSPs back then, at least that you could afford to put in synthesizers. Um, and that was the, the change in the, you, we still use a Comdac, but it's used in this weird analog sample hold feedback configuration and sounds way better. The, the E2 fidelity is, is really pretty good uh, for the day and yet it's still coding everything in eight bits. Um, and then the Emacs was a digital representation of that. Um, we finally got access to doing uh, digital VLSI, and uh, um, so that was how we did did that. Um, but you're right; the, the evolution was always there. To uh, and a lot of what I thought I was you know, was really my skill was I had some kind of an intuitive feel when I take one of these algorithms as to how the musicians would feel about it. You know, mm -hmm. the, 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 if it was noisy, it was noisy in a place that you really didn't, you, know, you could use rather than that would, would annoy you and things like that. And, uh, um, and so that's, a, there certainly is a lot of it in my designs of, you know, yeah, let's push the limits as far as we can, but uh, where we have to cheat a little bit, let's cheat in a place where, uh, where the cheating uh, doesn't sound horrible. Doesn't sound objectionable. And, and um, keeping, keeping the price to you know make it a consumer product. Exactly. Yeah. That, that uh, um, you know, Emu was never a and, and nor is Rossum a low cost producer. We we don't have the the skills that even in Sonic uh, or Roland or somebody like that has where they can really crank out a high volume. Uh, you you build companies in a different way when when you do that and. and uh, um, uh, and India was a great company. I, it was really fun to work at. Uh, um, people still come up to me on the street and say, you know, when I worked at India, that was the best time I ever had in my life. And that, mm -hmm. That's pretty rewarding as a, as a, very cool. a leader to, mm -hmm. to, to hear that from people. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you're right. Right, the Cost was always, always was, and at Ross and Electro, it, it still is. We, we're, we're busy trying to figure out what can we do um, reasonable cost and you know, we're never going to be making you know some hundred dollar modules or things like that um but uh, uh but i want to hold it in a place where uh yeah i'm not going to bankrupt everybody <laughs> have to get a roster <laughs> uh, it never ends hey, right? Dave. I mean, yeah. even now as, as the everything is so much more powerful and you're like your your sampler module is is unbelievable uh, if people had that in 87, it'd be like mind-blowing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it would still destroy the world. You still have to try to squeeze every bit out of, of whatever processor you're using, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, in, the, in the simulator, you know, Marco and Bob would come around because I, uh, my software in there is the, is the actual DSP routine. That, that's handcrafted by me. And uh, they're coming around, can we squeeze this feature in? And I, well, I don't know. If that's something. Oh, uh, here's a way I can save some instructions up here and put some instructions yeah. on here and so on. But yeah, yeah. I, I like doing that kind of stuff. And, and I love the invention. That, that's really, you know, what makes me tick is. Uh, hey, Dave. With 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 all those products that you've done like that, I mean everything from you know uh, the the SP12 on forward having different sequencers. Uh, you had the MP7 uh, and XL7 those workstations as well. You had all these really cool sequencers, but I don't see a Rossum Electro Mu sequencer. Yeah. So it makes me wonder, like, is this something that you would consider? Because you you've done sequencers, so it's it's something that you're more than familiar with. It's it's a very good question. I mean, I'll be quite frank. We have not actually considered 
a sequencer at this point. Uh, Bob uh, Bliss uh, is probably the guy who would have to uh, consider it, but uh, I, you know, I'll take it as a suggestion, and we will talk about it. I think that's well, a really well, good well, idea. Well, you kind of have one in the Control Forge. Yeah, the Control Forge has yeah. it, it, it sequencer applications. Um, but you're right. There, there, there's a lot more legacy out of Emu, and um, you know, that's, some of what we're trying to do at Rossum is is build on Emu some some degree of Emu legacy. Well, that's that's uh, the thing that always strikes me is, uh, for instance, uh, when Dave Smith and Roger Lynn did the Tempest, they put their names right on the front, right? Mm -hmm. And the only reason you can say to do that is to say we have a legacy. We know what the hell mm -hmm. we're doing, and right? We're so that for me, for this new product. So mm -hmm. for me, when I think of you know Rossum Electrum, you doing a sequencer, I think I, I'm not asking you to recreate a previous sequencer. I'm asking you to apply all the trial and error that you've had over the years and say, okay, we've done this. This is what works. This is what doesn't work. This is how we can move that forward. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course that's what we're going to do. I mean, as, I've, as I've said, I, I I don't want to rehash anything. I mean, there, there's this. Uh, would I want to revisit anything in the EMU catalog? I think primarily in that sense, it's like it's the same thing as I was saying about Linnaeus. You know, there were back in the old days there was this EMU UAF, and I didn't want to just redo that, but I would love to take ideas that we've had before. When that brainstorm strikes, of okay, here's what we can do that makes that makes it compelling in the moment today. Here's mm -hmm. you know some you know inspiration that makes mm -hmm. it special and makes it relevant today. I think that's the answer to that question. Uh, nice. I have a weird nerdy question from the EMU drumulator. <laughs> uh, do you happen to know where those drum sounds came from? Yeah, like the kits. Um, yeah, what, yep. what? you want to tell them? Yeah, well, the original sounds, we, we recorded them in a, uh, a studio in East San Jose somewhere. I forget the name of the studio. Dave Ross, uh, um, Ed, Ed Rudnick was there, and a friend of his was the chief engineer at this particular studio, and we just spent lots of nights there hitting things and recording them and listening to them, and then, listen, <laughs> and then listening to them again through the... Um, uh, the the compression of actually hearing it out of the drumulator circuit and sometimes what sounded great in the studio didn't sound so great in the drumulator so we'd be back in there doing more and it was totally trial and error so that that first set the basically the standard drumulator sounds were just drums recorded in that studio um, I was approached a year or so later by a couple of guys um, <laughs> who wanted to make uh, alternate drum sounds for it. One of them worked at uh, Dolby. I forget where the other one worked. And uh, that seemed like a good idea, so I told them we'd cooperate with them. Uh, they turned out uh, forming a company called Digidrums to yeah. uh, mm -hmm. to sell those kits. Mm -hmm. And I think they went on to form another company, too, yeah. if you yeah. remember. Yeah, but, I remember um, that name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, I'm not quite sure. I think they recorded their own elsewhere. I don't know the details of those, but... Uh, okay, no, but it's just good to know that... Yeah. There, there, it wasn't just specifically those drums that were like just picked to be that sound. It was a whole, a whole uh, exploration of recording stuff, and then you finally settled on those sounds. Yeah, the, yeah, and it, it it wasn't like we, you know, we were we were high end producers or anything. We were just, 
you know, was Ed and I and the gentleman who I'm sorry, whose name I no longer remember. Tom Paddock was his Ta name. Tom Paddock, exactly. Yep. Thank you, yep. Dave. Tom yeah. Paddock. And, Tom and, Paddock. and I can tell you a, a nasty little story. It's probably long enough now that you know it. <laughs> one, the one thing we could not get was the hand clap. Oh my God. Tom had a session that he'd recorded somewhere else. And he said, uh, why don't we just steal this? We, we, uh, we've tried hard enough. Nobody will really know. So the hand clap is out of some recording session somewhere that Tom had done. I don't even know that the recording session was at Ed, Ed and I spent hours until our hands hurt from trying to record those damn claps and never got anything that sounded half as good. Well, for whatever your new thing is, just know you can go to Mickey for a for a clap. Just know that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Get the I, know, Mickey, huh? I know this sentence sounds wrong, but Mickey has the clap. Yeah. <laughs> Mickey, Mickey's better at cowbell. I'm just yeah. gonna go ahead and say it. Yeah. His thunderclap is okay, but his cowbell inside of a cowbell module oh, yeah, is yeah. the he best. Think, think he, he did a digital cowbell inside of an actual cowbell. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's really, really cool. There it is. There Look at are. that. <laughs> cowbell inside oh. a cowbell. Yeah. That's <laughs> great. Yeah, that's, that's great. Good. That's good. That's good. Nice. Well, hey, I really appreciate you guys. This has been a great conversation. And, you know, the, the thing for us and the reason why we do this is we are in an interesting space with, you know, the, the age that we are and like uh, there's the 90s and this sort of golden age of what we like to call a golden age of the music with the samplers and all of this stuff. But then I, I feel like I'm at a space where I didn't really know all of the old sense until I was well into adulthood, mm -hmm. right? And then so there's kind of puts us in a space where we are very familiar, even more involved with a lot of newer instruments. And so I think that a lot of the people that may come and listen to us could be on either side of that fence, but nobody ever really gets to hear these stories and and the history behind all of the stuff that we love from this perspective. A lot of time, a lot of times the hip hop perspective is left out of everything. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? And I appreciate you guys coming on the show, our little show to kind of share these things with us. And it's it's a it's definitely a highlight of us doing the show. So thank you both for coming on. Yeah, thank well you thank you so for much. inviting us. It really yeah. has been I think we've had a lot of fun and told some stories and uh, yeah. uh, brought some insight to people. So I hope all the listeners loved it too. I'll put the guys on the spot um, and bring up what I brought up during Roger's interview is that uh, we would like in the future to do a round table uh, discussion where we get a bunch of you legends on the show all together. And we mm -hmm. just kind of riff and, and discuss, you know, topics of the day with uh with all of you guys so if you guys would be interested in that we'll, we'd love we'll set to it up. absolutely yeah, yeah we would love beautiful to. yes we'll look forward also, to it. also if you ever need a demo guy at nam just know that i'm available <laughs> oh and okay i'll be there you know and i can patch to my heart's content I, here's a here's I, I another love, thing here's another thing to add on to that and i thought about when I'm ken shameless. mentioned about the sequencer and the possibilities of exploring the sequence and all those stuff. Like I said about the hip hop perspective, there's a lot of times we're doing extra patching and extra mm -hmm. patch tricks because a lot of times the things that we need to make hip hop have been left out of the mix or not even thought about, not even left out. It's just that it's mm -hmm. we do things a little different sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, the, the if you context, ever yeah. want to 
you know, we got take you, we that got spaghetti you. and throw it against the wall yep. <laughs> with us. Be sure we're, to. We're here. Know, we're here. <laughs> we, we got your spaghetti. email addresses. There you yeah. go. Yep. We yeah. love spaghetti. <laughs> That's what we it. need is a modern day Kevin Monaghan to go hang out for days. And- yeah, that's right. Kevin was yeah. a guy at Emu. Nobody, nobody could ever figure out what he did, but what he really did, <laughs> he would go hang out with the, uh, you know, the the, the pro artists, artists yeah. and then come back and he could speak engineering to the engineers. And there them, you go. You know, what to do? <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, it was it was a magical talent. The guy was the oh, best wow. ever at that. And yeah. like Mark was the best strategic marketing guy I've ever mm-hmm. met. That's kind of that's kind of what I do for a lot of companies. That's actually Ken. Okay, no doubt. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And this has been another great episode of the Beat People podcast. We're going to end it there. You guys, be sure to uh, like, share, and subscribe, and uh, get notification notification bell too. A lot of cool stuff. Is the notification bell anything like the cowbell? Noti bell. The noti bell. 